Hello and welcome to History for Weirdos. We're your hosts, Andrew and Stephanie. And each week, we're going to take you on a journey into the strange, obscure, and relentlessly entertaining corners of human history. Now listen up, friends, because it's about to get weird. Welcome, weirdos, to episode number 81 of History for Weirdos. As always, we're so excited to be here and be back with some... This is going to be a weird story. I'm really excited. (laughs) So I think without further ado, let's just get into it. Yeah, let's just get into it. I'm really excited to share this week's story, which is the case of Julia Tofana, who was a 17th century professional poisoner who was a legendary mass murderer, essentially. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I, I'm 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 at a loss for words. Excellent. Yeah, I I didn't know to do. I didn't know the topic beforehand, so I'm really glad that you didn't tell me. Because this is very strange. I think even by history for weirdos standards. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately there's not a ton of information on this woman. But to me, yeah, of course, it's unsurprising. But to me, her story was too interesting not to cover. Of course. So Julia Tofana was known for helping women in Rome. 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 (laughs) I'm guessing it's not ancient Rome, though. No, 17th century Rome. Yeah. Escape mainly abusive marriages by poisoning their husbands. Lovely. (laughs) If her own confessions are to be believed, she's responsible for the death of a lot of men. But I'll share the numbers later. So we're really taking this femme fatale trope to just the highest levels possible. Absolutely. Absolutely. So as I mentioned, if we get into her background, there isn't a ton because she's not a high-born woman. And as we've talked about before on this podcast, the average woman's life isn't well recorded in history. True. Um, But let me share what we do know about her. Uh, It's believed that she was born in 1620 in Palermo, Sicily, before moving to Rome. Oh, cool. Um, They speculate, historians speculate, that she may have taken her first name from her mother's last name, which was a common practice at the time. Mm. Um, And this leads them to believe that she may be the daughter of another Palermo poisoner, Tofania Dadamo. Okay, say that three times really fast. Tofania Dadamo. Tofania Dadamo. <laughs> I don't think my Italian pronunciation is very good there, but... You're trying. I'm trying. Tofania Dadamo was executed... Oh, shoot. ...in July of... So that's not funny, but like that was unexpected. Unexpected. It gets dark fast. Yeah. She was executed in July of 1633 for having poisoned her late husband... Mm-hmm. Francesco D'Adamo, and for having trafficked in this illegal lethal poison into the region. Oh, interesting. And so this is just speculation that Tofania is the mother of Julia. Yeah. Okay. Um, so some say that Julia fled to Rome after her mother's execution. Okay. Others argue that the two lady poisoners are not related at all, but that Julia was a student of Tofania. Okay. So there's at least some sort of connection between the two, like highly 
likely. Yeah, exactly. Either way, it seems that Tofania taught Julia the tricks of the trade. Interesting. Whether that's through maternal line or just apprenticeship. Yeah, and Palermo, you know, in the White Lotus, there's just a lot of stuff that's going down there too. So it seems like it's a hotbed for criminal activity throughout the centuries. Since since back in the day, <laughs> from the 17th century to White Lotus times. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And guys, I'm kidding about the White Lotus stuff. But it's a very good show. It's a very good show. If you haven't seen it, I'm sure you've heard about it. Everyone's talked about it, but it is very good. Yeah, especially this season two. So, back to our story. Thank you. <laughs> Julia Tofana herself became a widow. We do not know mm-hmm. if she poisoned her spouse or if her spouse died of natural causes. We don't have any sort of record there. Okay. But she had a daughter, and she and her daughter, um, whose name was Hirolama Spara, moved from Palermo to Naples and then to Rome. And Rome at this time had once again become a cultural hotspot for Italy and for Western Europe in general. Nice, as it should be. Mm-hmm. It was, and I think has since been, also a top destination for pilgrims of Catholic faith, right? Unsurprising. So there's a lot of art going on. There's a lot of Catholicism fun going on. <laughs> Catholicism fun. <laughs> <laughs> There's probably a lot of good food. Yeah. Rome had, as you know, you could speak to this more, had been through some tough times. Indeed. During the medieval period. And this was its um, its comeback story. Yeah. I mean, it had been in kind of a decline for like, I don't know, since like the mid 6th century. Wow. That's a really long time. Yeah. Mid to late 6th century, I'd say. Whenever the, they cut the aqueducts. Oh, yeah. And so, like, this is almost like, what, a thousand years later? It is like a thousand years later. So So it took a little while. Took a bit of time. For Rome to come back, but it did. Um, And something else that was really popular in Rome at this time was the occult. Oh, like tarot cards, yeah? Yeah, tarot cards were, I think, very popular at this time throughout Europe. Um, The origins of, like, the Rider Waite tarot deck, which is the most famous one that you see probably on TV and stuff would have been around this time. We just don't know the exact origins. Interesting. Okay. Um, so when Julia gets to Rome... I'm sorry, the occult will come in soon, okay. I promise. But when she gets to Rome, she starts her own makeup business. <laughs> oh, jeez. And she very well may have actually sold makeup and beauty products, but the real bread and butter of this business was the poison she'd sell to the women who wanted their husbands dead. Do you know if she made a lot of money doing this? I think so. Mm, maybe it's a good business to get into. <laughs> yeah, I think she was pretty well off. Um, so let me give some context here. Let's keep in mind that in 17th century Italy, as well as probably most of the Western world at this time, many women were seen as property. Their status in life depended largely on their fathers and then their husbands. Women were in essence sold into often loveless marriages, right? You Mm -hmm. usually, as a bride, wouldn't know the guy beforehand. And they had few options for survival, which included marriage, which their life would then depend on their husband's income. Right. Sex work. Um, I didn't put this in, but I'm just thinking now, probably nun, being a nun, entering the church, or inheriting wealth, which would come from being already a very, very wealthy, high-born woman, and inheriting your father's wealth, which wasn't easy because it would almost always go to a male relative. Primogeniture. Yeah. yeah. Or becoming a widow, 
Yeah, do you know the ancient Romans actually didn't have primogeniture? Really? It, it was, could go to your daughter? Yeah, oftentimes it was. It was split, um, not... Like, so here in this time, they would just, it was the first born male heir. Yeah. Would get the vast majority of the wealth and the titles and all that stuff, right? Yeah. But in, yeah, in like ancient Rome, it was, it was just split amongst descendants. So eventually over time, things would get diluted, but Mm -hmm. at least you had like a a fair shot. And even if it wasn't a first born male son, a lot of times, um, the majority, especially if it's a very wealthy family of like land and things like that would actually go to even like a, a nephew or a cousin or something uh, anything besides a woman, a woman. <laughs> yeah that's crazy which is just crazy to think about so this is just to highlight these women had very little options for surviving on their own right um i will say though that during the italian renaissance women made small steps towards more gender equality they were able to become patrons of the arts it was becoming more acceptable for women to write, like become writers. Um, and they were generally allowed to indulge in more intellectual hobbies, language, um, music, bougie stuff, basically. Mm-hmm. But this was only for noble women mm-hmm. and noble women who were permitted to do so by the men in their lives. So it seems that enough women were in fact interested in the route of becoming widows <laughs> because... <laughs> Julia was able to build her business off this desire. <laughs> That's kind of amazing. Mm-hmm. And this makes sense as well when you consider that in the 17th century, in large European cities, as I mentioned, there was often an underground black magic or occult market. Ooh. Mm-hmm. This is obviously the Renaissance era. Mm-hmm. And this is a time where people were becoming more interested in quote-unquote science right a lot of what they thought of a science would not constitute a science today but this is the beginnings of science and just generally acquiring knowledge oftentimes knowledge that the church would not want you to have right because of this there were a lot of alchemists apothecaries and just straight up black magic practitioners that would sell goods or service services to help people obtain their desires yeah This, to me, is such a fascinating contrast to the omnipresent power and the beliefs of the Catholic Church in Western Europe at this time. As we know, kings and queens tied their legitimacy to God through the church. But even so, it's known that members of royal families would participate in these kind of like occult rituals or occult parties and things like that. Um, And there was just this very pervasive but unspoken fascination with black magic right so interesting to me that is interesting it was like banned but at the same time they're like but But everyone knew it was happening yeah Mm -hmm. and this is also in the time period after the cruel and unjust witch hunting Mm. in the 15th to early 17th centuries it's not that witchcraft became accepted by any means, right? If, if right. the church found out, you'd still probably be executed or something. Um, but this is just more accepted socially, I guess. Right. It's seen as more cool. I don't know how to explain it. There's this really interesting dichotomy here that I really, I just love. No, I think I understand it. Yeah, like witchcraft is just always bad. Like it's seen as 
taboo, but and never seen as more than that. Whereas like the cult is fascinating to people and they're like there is a social acceptance it's kind of like witchcraft light (laughs) yeah exactly they were down with witchcraft light um and all of this was to provide context for julia and the world that she's living in thank you i appreciate that so back to julia um julia had her own special brand of poisoning which she called aqua tofana which historians believe may have originally been invented by Tofania Diadamo, who I mentioned earlier. Wow. And it's further evidence of the link between the two women. So Aqua Tofano? Aqua Tofana. Oh, Tofana. So Uh, she named it after her. Yeah, I was going to say, is it just like, so like Tofana tofana water? water. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Aqua Tofana. Um, It was colorless, tasteless. It was in liquid form. And therefore, it was easily mixed with water or wine and was often served to its victims during meals. Wow. So that's insane. So colorless, odorless, and tasteless. Yep. And liquid. So super easy to transmit, Yeah, you just right? so yep. a little vial into, a, into like a glass of wine. Boom. The other day, weirdos, I was <laughs> scrolling on my phone and Andrew's like, what are you looking at? And I was on etsy and he's like what are those and it was those poison rings the ladies will know what i'm talking about (laughs) women um used to wear these rings big big gaudy looking things but they had these secret little compartments inside where you would hide poison so when you were pouring a drink you could just kind of have the ring pop open and you'd spill poison into the person's drink and i really want one just for whimsy purposes not for poisoning purposes a likely story. A likely story. Um, so while Julia's exact recipe was never recovered, we don't know exactly what was in there. No! We believe that aqua tofana consisted of arsenic, lead, and belladonna, also called deadly nightshade. Ooh. Today, most of us would recognize that all of these ingredients are poisonous. Right. But during this time, these were all ingredients commonly found in makeup and beauty products, which is why this was such a good cover that she was selling makeup and beauty products. Wow, that's so interesting. Also, fascinating too that they still, like the ancient Greeks and Romans used lead in their makeup. Wow, they did? Yeah, so, and it's just fascinating that they, they still, still at this it. time. Still had no idea what like, it was doing to them. Well over a millennium later. Yeah. Millennium and a half later. And Insane. then looking at one of these ingredients, belladonna, it actually gets its name, which in English means beautiful woman, mm-hmm. because Venetian ladies of the court at this time, women in Venice, Venice was very like... They're like the preeminent power. Yes, definitely. Because Italy, to my knowledge, is still very disjointed. It's not unified. It's really fragmented. Venice had this period where they kind of had like a little empire. But at this time, they're losing it because of the transatlantic trade. Yeah. But it was the Venetian ladies, the the wealthiest of the wealthiest women, who started the trend of putting belladonna eye drops in their eyes. Because the poison would make their pupils huge. And Which was the beauty standard of the time to have these giant pupils. Man, the th- the things that like people would go to to make themselves more beautiful. We still do weird, weird shit to this day. I guess to make so, ourselves yeah. look beautiful. I know. I I'm kind of fascinated to see like what like 
well, they're I mean, gonna we'll look be back dead. On. But like, yeah, like like hundred hundreds years from now, what they'll they'll look back on us now and be like, oh my god, I can't believe they did that. Probably the pesticides that we put in our food. Yeah, that's probably a big one. You're yeah. right. Like they ate that. Yeah, like I mean, they even, gave that to their kids. Yeah, like now, like we know, but we don't. We still do it, but like. I bet the more and more they research it, it's going to be really bad. Yeah, I agree. It's it's always so interesting to me. Whenever there's like a, a new weird beauty trend, like one right now is instead of getting like a facelift, uh, doctors or nurses can put like threads under your skin and like pull your skin up from the inside. I feel like that's one that they're going to look back on and be like, what the heck? Right. That's so not worth or it. Or anything that comes out of goop. Anything that comes out of goop. Yeah, that's a good place to start. If goop had existed in 17th century Venice, goop would definitely tell you to put belladonna eye drops in. Yeah, absolutely. So back to our story. (laughs) So again, these were very common ingredients, and they were very commonly used by women to make themselves, quote-unquote, more beautiful. Mm -hmm. So... The, the ingredients themselves were not suspicious in the hands of a woman. Right. And poisoning by aqua tofana mostly went undetected by victims or witnesses as it was impossible to trace even when the victim had passed. You couldn't... There were no uh, markers that they had been poisoned. It was slow acting with symptoms resembling many natural illnesses. This poison was to be delivered over four doses. So it wasn't a one and done. It was four doses. Oh, well, that's even smarter, but also more risky. Definitely more risky, but it definitely makes it look more natural. Yeah. The first small dosage would produce cold-like symptoms. The victim would be ill, would be very ill, excuse me, by the third dose. So dose mm-hmm. one and two, it looks like the person's got the flu. By the third dose, it's looking pretty bad. And the symptoms by the third dose include vomiting, dehydration, diarrhea, um, and just a general burning sensation in the digestive system. And by the fourth dose, they would die. Wow. So this is a rough way to go. It's not quick and painless. No. As it was slow acting, though, it allowed victims time to prepare for their death, including writing a will. Which was great if you were about to become a widow after slowly poisoning your husband. And you could help him make any necessary adjustments to that will. Oh, my God. Yep. So... Um, I have a fun fact here, but it's not that fun. Um, Lovely. For a long time, it was a rumor. It was rumored that Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart had been the victim of aqua tofana poisoning because he claimed this on his deathbed. He said, I've been poisoned by aqua tofana. However, there's no evidence to corroborate his claim. But I feel like that's the point of a good poisoning job. Right. There would be no evidence. Exactly. So it's like... Very well. He very well could have. He could have been. Or he's just going crazy and he died. Yeah. Or he's just being a little paranoid. Who knows? Right. And then not poisoned by aqua tofana, but I thought it was interesting that famous historical figures who've died by arsenic include Napoleon Bonaparte. Oh. Simone Bolivar. Oh. And Jane Austen. Oh. Oh my God. Those are... That's really interesting to me. So they all... Wow, I didn't know that. I, sorry, my mind's kind of blown right now. They, at the time, did not were unable to identify it as arsenic poisoning. We right. know this now because of um, studies done on their bone and hair. 
Oh, wow. Yeah, you can still, you can find the traces, like, of arsenic. Apparently, people of their time periods, even all the way to Jane Austen, still had pretty regular exposure to it. So it's Mm. not rare to find some in their hair fibers, but they all had, like, excessive amounts. Right, so you're like, okay, they were poisoned. Yeah. So they knew, like, that arsenic was poisonous. Yeah. Okay. But they were still using it for lots of fun stuff, I guess. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know either. I, I, I'm, I'm racking my brain, but I don't get it. Like, with, with lead, actually, it kind of makes sense because, one, they didn't know it was poisonous. Two, right. it's actually sweet tasting. So people, oh, really? Yeah, so, like, with even up until the 19th century, um, lead was used in pipes, and people would report that it tasted... It made it, the water sweet? made the water sweet specifically like plums. Oh my god. And also that's why on the periodic table of elements the the symbol for lead is PB. <gasps> Look at you coming in with the fun facts. I know, right? Look at that. Oh my god, that's so cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, so it's it apparently tasted sweet and that's why the Romans like never thought much of it. Right. They used because in their pipes. You'd think that our bodies would taste poison and have it feel bitter. Right. Or icky in some way, but not sweet like plums. Exactly. In fact, like it was, it was desired. And so I think that's, what's so interesting. And again, like, I mean, like the ancient Romans, even like Victorian, um, I know Victorian era here in the United States, we still had lead pipes. Absolutely. I don't, I don't know like if it lasted into the 20th century, but I, I just know that it lasted, you know, for literally thousands of years. Yeah, that's nuts. So yeah, that's one ingredient that apparently Julia Tofana knew it was poisonous, <laughs> <Yeah>. though. Because <laughs> she was using it. Arsenic, they knew. Um, and Belladonna, I don't know, actually, if they... I'm sure they knew that in Large. certain larger quantities, it was poisonous. I've heard of Nightshade, like, mentioned in, like, historical t- context before. Yeah. So they knew it was poisonous. But maybe in small doses, though, like... It just makes your pupils massive, which is so hot. So hot right now. Yeah. (laughs) Zoolander, you know? Yes. Back to the story. Oh, no, Hansel. I'm sorry. It's Hansel so hot right now. Okay. Back Back to to the the story. story. (laughs) So, with the help of her daughter and a group of reliable women, Tofana gained a reputation as a friend to troubled women. Her group consisted of about six poisoners who may have also recruited a local Roman priest, Father Girolamo, Girolamo probably, to help them out. Mm. It's generally believed that the priest supplied the arsenic for the poison, and Tofana and her crew would then make it into, you know, quote, cosmetics for their customers. And her business did well. Nice. If anyone were to get suspicious as to how this woman suddenly had so much money if she didn't have a husband, um, all she'd have to do was show them the bottles of Aqua Tofana, a very popular, (laughs) trendy face oil for women in Rome. Interesting. This oil was presented in a small glass bottle with an image of St. Nicholas on the front packaging, and this way it would blend in with the rest of a woman's cosmetics. Tofana's business in Rome was successful for decades, and she was loved by many, especially women, but apparently she was just well-loved in her community. Mm-hmm. And she had friends that of women who were both very, very poor and very, very wealthy. 
Oh, wow. Until one day, her poison empire came toppling down thanks to a bowl of soup. Wow. Okay, I'm, I'm assuming you're going to go into it. Yes. Imagine you just ended the episode right there. <laughs> Figure it out from here. <laughs> so, in 1650, a woman served her husband a bowl of soup laced with a drop, the first dose of aqua tofana. Before her husband could take a spoonful, however, the woman had a change of heart and begged him not to eat it. That's so dumb because he could have just eaten it and then he would have been fine. Like if she just had never given him more. Yeah. But maybe she thought, what if this kills him? What right. if he... I'm sure it wasn't an exact science. That's true. Um, but this act, her begging him not to eat his soup, raised the man's suspicions and he beat her until she confessed to poisoning his food. Uh, I could see why she was poisoning him in the first place. I know, it's like... (laughs) He immediately turned her into the authorities, who then tortured her more, until she admitted that she had purchased aqua tofana from Julia Tofana. With the authorities searching for her, Tofana escaped to a local church where she was granted sanctuary. Mm. That is, until a rumor was spread by men, I'm just going to say it was by men, that the woman had poisoned Rome's water supply with aqua tofana, and the public became frantic. As a result, the uh, authorities, they knew she was in the church, but I guess they couldn't get her because she was under protection of the church. But with the hysteria going on outside, they just decided to storm the church and take her. Right. She was then tortured by authorities until she ultimately confessed to being involved in the killings of at least 600 men. Oh my god, what? Between 1633 and 1650. Holy moly. It's hard to tell how accurate this number is because she was under duress. It honestly could be more. Right? Like, they like no, right. tell us the truth. There's more than that. Or it could be less. She could have been downplaying it. Yeah, only 300. Right. It could be a, a very humble 300. <laughs> we don't know. We don't know how accurate this is. But this is the number that she gave. Tofana was then executed alongside her daughter and a few of her close accomplices in the Campo di Fiori in Rome. Oh. We've been there. We've been there. It was close to where we stayed when we went last summer. Yeah, and there's also, I think it's in the Campo de Fiori, there's a statue of a, um, he was a scientist or something who was executed, burned yes. alive. And I think maybe in the Campo de Fiori as well. Yeah. Professor Graval showed us that statue and he's wearing like a cloak. Exactly, yeah. So it was a hot spot for executing people, I guess, <laughs> even though it's Campo de Fiori means like the flower market, basically, or like the flower place. Yeah, and it's pretty. And it's pretty. But anyway. Anyways, anywho. At least 40, at least 40 of Tofana's lower class customers were also executed when it was discovered that they had purchased the product, while women of upper class who were discovered were either imprisoned, banished, or escaped punishment altogether by claiming they didn't know that this was poison. Ooh, socioeconomic like differences coming into play here. Yeah, this goes back to what we discussed at the beginning of the episode, that safety and quality of life for women were largely linked to the families they belonged to. 
Mm. If your family had a big name, you're not going to get hurt. Right. But if you were poor, then... Then you're executed. You're SOL. Mm-hmm. Julia Tofana is definitely a morally gray character in history. a safe assumption. But those often seem to be the most compelling ones. Absolutely. Murder, especially at this scale, is not something I'm condoning by any means. It is, however, I think understandable that with high exposure to trauma and very few options and resources that this would happen. Stephanie the social worker comes out to play. (laughs) I can't help it. (laughs) I just think it makes sense that people, all, all kinds of people, would eventually go to lethal means for freedom. Right. So we can, I agree. I think that makes sense. Yeah. I think we can all agree, though, that it's a fascinating story. And even though she was caught and executed, she left a lasting legacy because her story comes up over and over again in kind of like the public psyche. Mm-hmm. People rediscover this story and get super fascinated by it because she just got away with it for so long. Yeah. Um, and that, my lovely weirdos, is the story of Julia Tofana. Oh, wow. Thank you so much. I legit had never heard of her before. So this is... I'm glad you didn't tell me who you were doing it on. Yeah. Yeah. No, this was a fun, cool one. Like I said, I wish we knew more about like her life or what kind of like her day-to-day was like, even as a professional poisoner. Right. But just too weird not to share with the weirdos. Yeah, exactly. You know, I love that we're, we're focusing on women, obviously, during Women's History Month. Um, and especially where, you know, what I really like is, you know, not to toot our own horn too much. We're, we're really going into like the depths of like, you know, women that are not talked about nearly as much as they probably should be. Yeah. And it's not even necessarily like for good or bad. Yeah. To exalt her like, Oh, look, I just think it's a very honest picture of what women were going through and what they were willing to do at the time in history. That's perfectly said. Thank you, my love. And let me just share my sources for this story. Obviously, Wikipedia. But there actually wasn't a ton about her on Wikipedia, just sort of the broad strokes. Mm -hmm. Um, This website called The Collector was really, really interesting. Um, It gave a lot of context for Italy at this time. Oh, that's nice. The Crime Wire. All that's interesting. Sci-Fi, and that's S-Y-F-Y. And History.com. I really like all that's interesting. They have some really oddball things on that site. They have really good content, yeah. yeah. I tend to find them very useful when we research. Yeah, and hope if you guys, if weirdos, if you guys want to go down like a rabbit hole, that's a good place to start. That's, that is a good place to start, yes. Yeah. And that is all I have for you this week, weirdos. Well, thank you so much, Steph. And I'm going to do our little spiel. If you guys haven't already, make sure to like and subscribe to us on the platform of your choice. And Mm -hmm. also follow us on Instagram at History4Weirdos. Yes, we love, love, love connecting with you all as much as we can on Instagram. So definitely check us out there. We also like share fun updates, behind the scenes stuff. Andrew has these awesome, awesome videos that he shares. So you definitely don't want to miss out. All right, weirdos. Until next time. Bye. Bye.